For those who fish, this is the Drake cast. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. Could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. I'm your host, Elliot Adler. This episode of the Drake cast is brought to you by our friends at Scott Flyrods. The other day, I spoke with Brian Husky, a photographer and filmmaker with Fish Bite Media, about why he uses Scott Fly Rods. I've really been happy to be part of Scott Fly Rods. They're quality rods, they have high quality components. The line guides are fantastic, and the line seeps out for the guide smoother and better than I think in any other rods that I've fished. And when you're on a Spring Creek and delicate presentation, you need a line to move through the rod. Whether it's a long cast with a single hander or satisfaction. When you fire the long cast with a spay rod and hearing that running line slap against the rod as it extends across the river, those are like food for the soul of the junkie and all of us that just breathe that stuff. Head down to your local fly shop today and give one of these fine Scott rods a toss. This episode is also sponsored by Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures. I checked in with Yellow Dog employee Camille Egdorf to see where she's been lately. I was down in Guyana, out in uh, South America, and we were targeting Arapaima. The jungle is, it's a whole other world. You stop on the river and then you hike through the jungle to get to these ponds where these Arapaima live. And um, you kind of have to watch where you step. You know, you got fire ants that are crawling across the trail, and if you step on one of them, they'll grab onto you, and it hurts. It really hurts. Everything out there has some sort of way to give you some gnarly bite or rash. And uh, these arapaima, they get to be five, six, maybe even seven feet long. And uh, we did have a couple that came to the boat that were in excess of five feet. Yeah, it's a pretty intimidating sight when they come up to the boat. The guide gets in the water, and they grab them around the front, and they wrestle them and grab them by the peck fins. And it's just it's a wild experience, and I kind of had to think twice about getting in the water with one. Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures will make sure you get there, but it's up to you whether or not you jump in the water with that giant fish. Check them out at yellowdogflyfishingadventures.com. This most recent spring... I went up to Bozeman, Montana to report on a story. Well, that's what I told my editor, but I mainly flew up there because a friend who attends Montana State University has a drift boat, and he doesn't really take his class schedule all that seriously, so we always go fishing a lot. We're on the Madison River, between Varney Bridge and Eight Mile. Gonna catch some trout. Tell me what's going on right now. Starting to catch fish. On what? Ray Charles and uh, like brown soft tackle. Beautiful, man. Nice and sunny, no wind. Big one. <laughs> oh, those fucking rock. <laughs> oh my god, dude, you're you got a stump on that. Dude, that needs to be net. That's a nice rainbow. That's a big rainbow. But while I was there, I did actually have to work on a story. I wrote about it for the summer 2017 issue of the Drake magazine, but this audio story contains a lot more information than the written version. Stick around. Hey. Elliot? Yeah. Hey, Jim? Sorry, I hope I didn't keep you waiting. No, no, I, I just got here a couple minutes ago. Excellent. How are you? Hectic. This is James Thull. He's middle-aged, with a shaved head, Gandhi glasses, and a goatee. I met him on the second floor of MSU's main library. I was there in search of a secret treasure held under lock and key. He took me across the room to a door that he claims holds by far the largest collection of materials on trout and salmonids in the world. 
Now, that may sound like a lofty title for a padlocked closet with a bunch of fishing books, but it's actually a bit more than that. This is MSU's Trout and Samanid Special Collections Library, and it is, in fact, the largest of its kind in the world. You can see here we've got a book from 1970, and next to it is a book from 1616. We collect anything that relates to Trout and Salmonids. There's about uh, coming up on 13,000 volumes in the collection. As you can see, language is not an issue. There's some uh, Deutsch books there. Um, we have things in Latin, French, Copic, what have you. One of my favorites I always point out is a little pamphlet published by the state of Alaska in about, I think it was 1940, uh, about how to safely can salmon. And it's just a cool little esoteric piece. But at the time, people were dying from eating improperly canned salmon. And Dam removal, insects, various angling methods, river health and pollution data, you name it, James probably has it stashed in there somewhere. The collection also claims some pretty unique artifacts. So we collect original primary source documents. Those are typically people's collections of papers. So like we have Sylvester Nam's diary that he kept during World War II in France and he was fishing. We have John Garrock's papers. Uh, the papers of A.K. Best, Ed Engel, Tom Alcar, Dave Hughes, uh, Robert Banky, George Grant, Bud Lilly, Bob Jacklin. You know, so I mean that poetry that, that Garrock wrote in the 70s. We have the only copies of that that exist anywhere in the world. You know, those letters that he wrote to Ed Engel or that Ed Engel wrote to him since we have both collections. While all this stuff is really cool, the collection does actually have a purpose other than just being something for diehard anglers to fawn over. The goal of the collection is to create the most comprehensive research center for all things related to trout and salmonids and disseminate that information to anyone anywhere who needs it. In the past decade, a ton of research has referenced works housed in the Trout and Samanid Library. Papers on topics like the impact of lake trout in Montana and Wyoming, which helped shape policies in multiple national parks, they all relied on the MSU collection. I wouldn't say there's a week that goes by that we don't get an inquiry from a researcher somewhere. For example... I had uh, some requests on uh, the history of bamboo rod making from a researcher in South Africa not that long ago who wanted to know about the history of the various species of bamboo that were used and how those were developed and how those were, were found and tested and where they originated, what type of early documentation we had on that. And we were able to get him some scientific information, not only on the use of bamboo and how that process was developed over time, but actually on the plant species itself. Again, we collect everything that relates back. So we have things on growing bamboo here because it relates to angling and trout and salmonids. In addition to all of this physical material, James has embarked upon recording a library of oral histories related to angling with fishermen and fisherwomen from around the world. James has interviewed big names like Lefty Cray and Joan Wolfe, but he spends an equal amount of time chatting with folks like Ray Ball, an unknown Appalachian man who's fished for wild brook trout his entire life. And there's an overall goal to this project. And that is about the idea of documenting the importance of angling culture in our time. So today, for the rest of this episode, we're bringing you some select stories and sound bites from those interviews. There are dozens of hours of folks talking about fishing in this collection, so we sifted through a whole bunch of them and edited the interviews down to some choice clips. And what I like best about these sound bites is that you get to hear the enthusiasm and emotion in the speakers' voices as they tell their stories. Listen for Ed Engel's nostalgia as he talks about his father. 
for how Glenn Brackett explains his newfound approach to angling now that his kids have kids, for how Esther Lilly fondly recalls early motherhood, and how fishing has changed AK Best's life. My goal is for you as a listener to get a sense of who these people are through how they speak about fishing, and hopefully you can relate to their stories as well. Here we go. We're going to start with a story from Ed Angle, the author of numerous books on fly fishing and fly tying. When I was a kid, I grew up, went to school, and I got into trouble, like most kids do in school, and my dad would take me fishing. And, you know, we'd talk about what's going on, and and I remember going to the... uh, I lived in Virginia at the time, and we go to a place called Lake Brittle, which was near Washington, D.C., but uh, he'd take me out there, and the, the, there's a man who would rent boats, and so we, we rented a boat. My dad told him, he said, well, Eddie's gotten into trouble, and you know, we just thought we'd come out and fish and talk about it. And the, I remember that, that guy, and he said, well, you know, the way I see it, any boy who fishes can't be all bad. The next snippet comes from Monty Hankinson, a lifelong angler and guide on the Big Hole and Beaverhead Rivers in Montana. He shared a couple of his thoughts on guiding and teaching. If you give me a choice of having a a new client that's a very experienced fly fisherman, or you give me a 10, 12-year-old kid, I'll take the kid. (laughs) Just just because I like to see him learn. And the excitement of it, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot to that, I think. Oh, as far as things that irritate me, cell phones bug me. <laughs> I'm old school, and uh, when the fishing's good and you're really into it and, and the phone rings and you got to stop everything to answer the phone, uh, better to leave the phone in the truck. <laughs> When asked whether he liked teaching men or women better, he gave this answer. I think the ladies are easier to teach. Um, men seem to want to try and power the rod rather than letting the rod and the line do the job for them. And uh, they, they listen. <laughs> I guess that uh, gets down to the basics. <laughs> Our next story comes from a woman who greatly shaped fly fishing as we know it today. She was National Executive Director for Trout Unlimited in the mid-80s, and later on held the same post for the Federation of Fly Fishers. She was the first person to hold both positions, and also the first woman to be the director of either organization. Ladies and gentlemen, Esther Lilly. (laughs) She's also the wife of the late, great Bud Lilly, who also had an incredible impact on fly fishing. She shared one of her favorite memories of her time with Bud. When we were first dating, of course, I had little children, and we would go away uh, for the day fly fishing and take the kids with us. I can remember one time, they were both going to Longfellow School, and we knew the hatch was on, <laughs> the Yellowstone. And so we picked the kids up at Longfellow School and grabbed some hot dogs and headed out to the Yellowstone, and we. Uh, we're having a little weeder roast, and the kids and I and Bud, we were all fishing. And we had the worst time getting the kids in off the river because the fish were just everywhere. And I think Bud had to, <laughs> he finally went out in the middle of the river and got Elise under one arm and Chris under the other arm. He said, we're going home. 
The next story comes to us from Glenn Brackett, a former owner of Winston Rods and current founder, owner, and bamboo rod maker at Sweetgrass Rods. He shared a heartfelt story about his relationship with fishing these days. I have a granddaughter who's six now, and she bums around with me everywhere I go and I hit the, hit the river to go fishing or swimming or just this last summer, we were going up this small creek and one of the things we uh, do is we do tea ceremony. So she gets a pot of water out of the creek and gets the fire going and finds the three rocks to put the kettle on and, and like, you know, gathers the materials. It, it's fun, it's almost like I'm living my my childhood over through her, which is a, a beautiful thing for me. So, fire's going, put the pot on, boil the water, listen to the pot, make its neat little noises, and then pour out the tea and, and serve it up. Of course, she doesn't like tea, but she loves the Fig Newtons. It's just so pleasurable for me to sit there in that, that peaceful moment with her and watch her relate to you know what what we're trying to experience together along the stream with the mountains around us and the stream flowing by us. Taking a youngster along greatly enhances the experience of, of fishing for me. It helps to stop me from from going out and just fishing for fishing's sake and, and see all the other things that pass me by if I don't have a youngster with so I take her every opportunity I can get and then introduce her to my world and it's slowly becoming now her world too. Our final story comes to us from the legendary author, fly tire, and fisherman, A.K. Best. He shared a story that sums up his relationship with fishing and beyond. I have met my spirit in the Michigan woods. This will take a little while. I fished Hunt Creek many times when we lived there, and I'd fish it twice a week once the season opened. Michigan is a series of old ancient sandbars. There's these ridges and there's cedar swamps. And I got to the point one year where I would walk over to the next ridge to see and follow that down to the swamp and then cut back to the stream. And one day I'm peering through the cedars and the alders and it looks like there's an open spot in there. And I'm curious, so I thought, well, I wonder what's in there. So I pulled my rod apart, held it together with a rubber band on each end, and pawed my way through there. And I had just lit my full bent pipe. I used to smoke a pipe a lot because it keeps the mosquitoes away. I walked in there and there was an area flat as a pancake with nothing on it but grass. In the twilight light, it was a color of jade, golden jade, just glistening. And all the birch and all the cedars were farming, it looked almost like a cathedral ceiling. And all at once, I felt I was not alone. And this warm, comfortable feeling engulfed me to the point where I fell on my knees and I shut my eyes and I felt like I should reach out but I was afraid I'd get someplace and not be able to get back. 
When I opened my eyes, it was dark. My pipe bowl was cold. I had to get my compass out to make sure I was headed straight west to find the creek. When I found the creek, I came out at a big bend pool. And there was just enough gray dusk light to see the surface. It looked like chrome. And there were rings all over it. I looked in the sky and there were mayflies. And there were trout rising. And I sat there and sobbed and I said, thank you, this is my life. This is life presented for me. Years later, I'm at a fly fishing show in Denver and there's also an Indian market. And uh, I knew one of the guys who makes silver turquoise jewelry and we happened to end up at the same bar to have a drink afterwards. We talked about how the fishing was going and he said, well, where are you from? And I told him. He said, it must be nice in the woods up there. And I said, it's beautiful. And I told him that story. When I finished, he had tears coming down his cheeks. He reached out and took my hand and says, my brother, you have met the spirit and it will always be with you. That's what fishing does for me. I feel closer to my spirit. Not something that someone else says I should feel. It's not a name put to it by man. It's my spirit who I think guides me. Since that time, I have not been afraid of the rest of my life. Because my spirit is with me. Many thanks to all of the interviewees for sharing their stories with James Thull and the MSU Trout and Samonid Collection, whose digital record ensures that these histories never disappear. But before we go, there's one more huge selling point at the MSU Trout and Samonid Collection. So all of this is, of course, the non-public area. James took me back even deeper into the bowels of the library to yet another locked door and a gun safe. There's our safe unlocked. James reached in and carefully pulled out a very old-looking book. This is old, a slut book held by any library in the state of Montana. Uh, this is published in 1531. It's a book called the Roman Plibilius. It's in Latin, and what's unique about this book is that it contains the first ever mention in print of fishing in the New World. And uh, it's basically a report on the fishes of Rome in Italy. And But they mention in passing kind of a couple paragraphs about the reports of the abundance of fish in the New World, which I just think is neat. Do you want to touch it? Yeah. I did want to touch it. As I touched it, James gave me some parting notes. You know, if you build it, they won't necessarily come unless you market it, you know. And uh, we don't want it to just sit here stagnant. We want people to use it. So the next time you find yourself in Bozeman and the rivers are all blown out, Give James a call. He'd love to show you around. He might even let you check out one of the old Gary Borger instructional casting videos on VHS. Bring some popcorn when you go. If you're not going to make it to Bozeman anytime soon, check out the collection's Angling Oral Histories, which are all online. There are a ton of stories that I didn't get to share today, and they're just as good. You'll find a link to the oral histories, as well as contact information for James Thull at MSU's Trout and Samonid Collection on our website, drakemag.com. Many thanks to James Thull for showing me around the collection. A shout-out to Tommy, Ralph, and Miles for rowing me down the Yellowstone and Upper Madison rivers. 
Our title track is Ain't It Sweet by Phil Cook. The talented Keegan Lynch designed our logo. I'd invite you to tune in next week, but we're actually going to take next week off. I'm on self-assignment in the middle of nowhere and don't really have access to a computer. But next, next week, we'll be back with a rousing story about something or another. Thanks for listening. This has been The Drake Cast. <laughs>